Again, it is a great honor to be here. My wife and I have been warmly welcomed, and uh, we've really enjoyed being able to be here among you, um, and even to know about this, this vital church, and um, we rejoice in what God is doing here. Uh, this morning, I want to again talk about hymns. We're going to um, talk about the importance of what we sing. Mar uh, sorry, Augustine. Great St. Augustine said one time that he who sings prays twice. It's an interesting idea. And what he's referring to is the idea that singing intensifies whatever you're saying. Yesterday we looked at the issue of lament. We looked at Psalm 73. We looked at a hymn by a woman named Anne Steele written in the 1700s. Dear refuge of my weary soul. And who could doubt that being able to sing those words enables us to pour out our heart before God even more fully, more intensely. Today, we want to look at the idea of singing to get the gospel, the word about Christ, to dwell in us richly. My friend Scotty Smith likes to say that we need to hear not just the lyrics, but the music of the gospel. The way that Paul, the Apostle Paul, puts that idea is in Colossians 3. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. So we're going to look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Paul shows us why singing is vital for getting the gospel into our hearts as well as into our heads and into our community. So that we would be both gospel driven individually and as a community. Follow along as I read from the letter to the Colossians. This is the word of God. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Join with me in prayer, please. Lord, we do thank you for your holy word. We pray that you would bless not only the reading of your word, but even the foolishness of preaching. That you would use even this time to help the word of Christ dwell in us richly. To that end, we pray that you would send your spirit to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to make a couple comments on the text and then um, talk a little bit more specifically about singing, particularly the way singing has impacted the history of the church. First is the peace of Christ in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The first thing I want to suggest to you that Paul is not describing a feeling when he talks about the peace of Christ. He's not saying, I want you to walk around always feeling a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. No, if you would see how Paul uses this idea of the peace of Christ throughout his writings, you will find that typically this is a reference to the peace that Christ has wrought between God and man. Particularly in his letter to the Ephesians, he talks about how God has reconciled both Jews and Gentiles, people who hated one another, to God, and in so doing, has reconciled them one to another. Here we see the same kind of context, is that as the peace of Christ rules, as the peace 
that Christ has wrought for us at the cross rules, dominates, drives everything we do, everything we think, it actually affects unity in the body. Why might that be? Well, because as Paul says in the letter to the Ephesians, and I think implies here, only the gospel of grace can be a basis for unity. Because only the gospel of grace excludes boasting. If you think about it, so many of the things that separate man from man, whether it's individually or whether it's various communities, so much of it has to do with things that we take pride in. Things that we feel either we've done or haven't done that make us better than someone else. But the reason that the gospel can bring together people who hate one another, Jews and Gentiles, is because the gospel, the truth that God has made dead people alive, for that is how Paul defines grace in Ephesians 2. Grace is God making dead people alive, not because of anything they've done, but because of His grace. That excludes boasting and opens up the possibility that we could come together. Because, as has been well said, we are all equal at the foot of the cross. The peace of Christ, the peace that Christ has wrought for us, is the thing we are to be thankful for. Because it's our only hope, and it's the only hope for us to dwell in unity with those whom we would never choose to call friends. So what Paul is saying here is that the gospel must be at the heart of everything. It must rule over social conventions and taboos. It must rule over even our feelings. Don't reduce Paul's worth here to him merely saying, walk around with warm, fuzzy feelings and hope that you can get along with people. There's a man named Jack Miller who's went on to be with the Lord. He used to love to say, niceness will kill a church. <laughs> but if you reduce what Paul's saying here to just walk around with warm fuzzies and be nice to everybody, you're so far from what Paul hopes for us to be. Let the peace of Christ peace Christ has wrought rule in us. And for the peace of Christ to rule, Paul says, the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly. And again here, I think the better way to translate this is not the word of Christ, referring to all the Bible or everything that Christ has said, but in particular the word about Christ, the word that centers on Christ. Paul said to the Corinthians that when I was with you, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. The preeminent word about Christ is the gospel. For the peace of Christ to rule, for the idea that God has wrought peace between God and man to rule, the word about Christ, the gospel, the news that Jesus has reconciled sinners by his blood must dwell in us richly. And it's worth noting that the you here is not singular, it's plural. So Paul is saying not just that you need to individually have the gospel dwelling in you richly, but it must dwell richly among you corporately as a community. Thus we are not just to be a gospel-driven individual, but a gospel-driven community. And then Paul says singing is vital for us to be a gospel-driven community. Why? Again, Augustine helps us. He who sings prays twice. Paul doesn't just tell us to know the gospel, to know about the gospel. He wants it to dwell in our hearts. He wants it to rule everything. And he wants it to dwell in us richly. We need to hear not just the lyrics of the gospel, 
but the music of the gospel. And there's so many examples in the history of the church. You know, too often the history of the church is told as a history of great preachers and great preaching. But I find it fascinating to see how many of the people that we hold up as people greatly used of God were very committed and concerned with the music of the church. And we're concerned about the singing of God's people. And if what Paul says here is true, you can understand why this would be the case. Augustine himself, often the story is told of his conversion, how he heard some children playing a game as he was sitting out in a garden. And he heard uh, one of them say, take up and read. And he reached down and he picked up the Bible and was converted. But elsewhere in his confessions, he talks about the hymns of Ambrose. Augustine had went to study under Ambrose to learn how to speak. He wanted to study rhetoric. He wasn't interested in becoming a Christian. But in his testimony, he says this about Ambrose and the hymns that were being sung at the church there. I wept at the beauty of your hymns and canticles and was powerfully moved at the sweet sound of your church singing. The sound flowed into my ears and the truth streamed into my heart. If you ask Augustine about his confession and about his conversion, the singing of the church is a powerful instrument of God to get the word of God to dwell in him richly, powerfully, beautifully. Council of Nicaea in AD 365 banned congregational singing. A lot of people don't know this. And it's debated among church music scholars how widely this was enforced. But basically for a thousand years, congregational singing was not practiced in the Christian church in Europe. It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? The Council of Laodicea, 8365, said this, No others shall sing in the church, save only the canonical singers who go up into the pulpit and sing from a book. Basically, they said, the only people that are allowed to sing are the trained priestly singers. And it really is John Hus in the 1400s in Bavaria who begins to restore not only serving communion, both the bread and the wine, to the people, but congregational singing as well. Imagine what it was like to not sing for almost a thousand years. John Huss was burned at the stake at the Council of Constance in 1415. And he died singing a hymn. And the Council of Constance reiterated, if laymen are forbidden from preaching, how much more are they forbidden from singing? Now we come to Martin Luther. Most people have no idea about the importance of singing to the success of the Reformation. Philip Schaff, a great church historian, said this about Martin Luther. To Luther belongs the extraordinary merit of having given to the German people in their own tongue the Bible, the Catechism, and the hymn book. So that, they, so that God might speak directly to them in his word and so that they might speak directly to him in their songs. It wasn't just that Luther taught the gospel, though he did that. He translated the Bible so that God's people could read it in their own language. He wrote a catechism that summarized the great teachings of the Bible so that people could understand the central message of the gospel. And he was the one who began 
German hymns. His first little hymn book he put out had just a handful of hymns. His first hymn was inspired when he heard a report of the first two young men, teenagers really, who had been burned at the stake in Brussels for the cause of the Reformation. And when Luther received word of this and heard how they had died singing the Te Deum as they were burned at the stake, he wrote his first hymn. He went to write up a few more hymns, published the first hymn book, it had eight hymns. And in the preface to that book, Martin Luther says that he is issuing a call for German poets to join him and take up this work of writing songs for God's people to sing so that he says, I love this phrase, so that the gospel may be noised abroad. A Catholic monk, a century after the Reformation in Germany, in looking back at the Reformation said, Martin Luther damned more souls with his songs than with his preaching. So at least from that monk's perspective, who was no fan of Martin Luther and his gospel, the songs were at least as important as the preaching. Now I'm not denigrating preaching. I myself am a preacher. But I do think it important for us to understand that the Bible itself says that singing is vital. And God has continued to own that throughout history. We come to Calvin, John Calvin. When he arrived in Geneva in the 1500s and was persuaded to stay, even though that wasn't his intention, they had not been singing congregationally for a thousand years. The Reformation had come, the gospel was being preached, but they weren't singing. Calvin was convinced that they needed to reintroduce congregational singing into the churches in Geneva. As a matter of fact, Calvin and his cohort there, Farrell, said to the city council, there are four non-negotiables if you want us to stay for the reformation of the church and a more pure reformation. And singing was one of them. Here's what he said. We are unable to compute the profit and edification which will arise from this trying to sing except after having experimented. We just need to try it, guys. That's what he's saying. Certainly as things are, the prayers of the faithful are so cold that we ought to be ashamed and dismayed. The Psalms can incite us to lift our hearts to God and move us to an ardor in invoking and exalting with praises the glory of His name. But they get kicked out of Geneva before they're able to try singing. And Martin, or no, Calvin goes to Strasbourg and he hears a man, Martin Bootser, leading German refugees in singing for the first time. And he's doubly convinced and actually publishes the first Genevan Psalter before he's even back in Geneva. And when the city council pleads with him to come back, he says, only on the condition that we sing. You think of John Calvin, I don't know how you think of him. A lot of people have different opinions about him. But this you need to know. He worked at congregational singing his entire career and considered it vital. I could tell you about others. I could tell you about George Whitfield, again, known as this great preacher, but he published a hymn book. I could tell you about John Wesley, whose Methodist hymn book was, he said, was a little body of practical divinity. I could tell you about Charles Spurgeon, who produced a hymn book. J.C. Ryle, the great uh, evangelical bishop of the 19th century, produced a hymnal. And John Newton. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, two other hymns in the hymnal in your pew that he wrote, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, and How Sweet the Name Jesus Sounds in a Believer's Ear. I want us to look at this great hymn, one of his greatest, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, and it's there in your handout. I want to just read this and make a few comments. This is precisely the kinds of songs we need to sing for the gospel to dwell in us richly. 
Even the title, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. It's not, let us just confess the faith, though I believe confessions of faith are very important. I believe catechisms are very important. I believe teaching and preaching, very important. But Luther, uh, uh, Newton is getting at something here. It's not enough to know the truth. We should sing it, love it, and wonder at it. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said one time, whenever I find something in the Bible that I don't understand, I consider that God has set there an altar for me to kneel and worship. That the mysteries are to be an altar of devotion. And there is no greater mystery than why would my God die for thee? As Augustus Toplady, who wrote Rock of Ages, put it, The judge of all has suffered death to set his prisoner free. How does that make sense? He says, Oh, love incomprehensible that made thee bleed for me. The judge of all has suffered death to set his prisoner free. Surely that is something that should provoke singing, love, and wonder. Well, to Newton's hymn, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. Through the blood of Christ, the law that stood condemned, this law that condemned us itself, was quenched and satisfied. There is no condemnation, Paul says in Romans 8, now for those who have been washed by Christ's blood. Verse 2, let us love the Lord who bought us, pitied us when enemies, called us by His grace and taught us, gave us ears and gave us eyes. He has washed us with His blood. He presents our souls to God. Let us sing, though fierce temptation threatens hard to bear us down. For the Lord, our strong salvation, holds in view the conqueror's crown. He who washed us with his blood soon will bring us home to God. And then we come to the stanza that I consider one of the greatest ever written in all of English hymnody. Let us wonder. Grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When, through grace in Christ, our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. Grace and justice join at the cross and point to the storehouse of mercy. Paul says that at the cross, God both justifies the wicked and is justified in doing it. He is both just and the justifier of the wicked because God never winks at sin. Sin is punished on the person of Christ. The cross is not about God saying, I no longer care about sin. It's saying, I care about sin so much so that it must be dealt with. And it is dealt with at the cross. So when through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. This is so important to understand. Grace and what God thinks about his people who have trusted in Christ is not based upon God's whim or God's mood of the moment. 
but upon something that actually happened 2,000 years ago in real space-time history. Jesus actually died as a substitute for His people. And God's justice was satisfied. I find all the time as I work with college students that they think that all that they get when they trust in Christ is forgiveness. Forgiveness is not all that we get, brothers and sisters. What, what the Bible says is that we get righteousness. And here's the difference. Forgiveness means your debt's been paid and you're brought back to zero. But God requires that we love the Lord with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. And I don't care how many fresh starts I get, I will never be able to accomplish that. But righteousness, as Paul says to the Corinthians, Christ was made to be sin. The one who knew no sin was made to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness means being beautiful in God's sight because He sees you as having done everything that He's asked. And He sees you as having done it from the heart because Jesus did it from the heart. And when your trust is in Him, you don't just get forgiveness and a fresh start. You get the righteousness that Christ earned by loving the Lord God with all His heart, with all His mind, with all His soul, with all His strength given to you. This is why justice smiles and asks no more. And then he goes on, let us praise and join the chorus of the saints enthroned on high. Here they trusted him before us. Now their praises fill the sky. Thou hast washed us with thy blood. Thou art worthy Lamb of God. And then verse 6, rarely sung, but I think a great ending to this hymn. Yes, we praise thee, gracious Savior. Wonder, love, and bless thy name. Pardon, Lord, our poor endeavor. That means basically we don't sing in a way that's worthy. We don't even write songs that are worthy of the great gospel that we confess. But pardon this poor endeavor. Pity us, for thou knowest our frame. You know that we're dust. Wash our souls and songs with blood, for by thee we come to God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says that our spiritual sacrifices are made acceptable. Not because we sing so well, not because our hearts are right, but because they're made acceptable in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us sing songs that help the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. We need gospel-centered, gospel-driven songs if we would hope to have the gospel, the word about Christ, dwell in us richly so that we would become the kind of unified, gospel-driven community that God is committed to building. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would, that you would do what you ask us to be about here, that you would stir us to sing these kinds of songs among one another so that the word about Christ would dwell in us richly and that it would be seen in the way we would love one another and love those who aren't here. But we long for them to be here and be part of us. We pray that you would do that work in this, your church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.